I hope that you will turn with me in a Bible, the Word of God, to Hebrews chapter 4, as we look together at verses 12 to 13. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 to 13. And as you open to that, whether in a printed copy of the Scriptures or on a device, I need to urge you to use extreme caution. Because you're handling something there. You may not realize it, but you're handling something that is sharper than a double-edged sword. You're handling something lethal, believe it or not. Use extreme caution caution. There are sharp edges on what you're holding in your hands, what your eyes are looking at. And that's the emphasis of these verses we're looking at this morning. And they show us that this caution means that we need to beware of reading the Scriptures with cold and hardened hearts. Because if we do, we run the risk of coming away with hearts that are even more cold and more hardened. We need to approach the Scriptures with the leading of the Holy Spirit, with yielded hearts, with surrendered minds, with submitted attitudes. That this is God's Word. We need to be silent and listen. That's the emphasis. Now, these verses we're looking at are probably familiar to many of us because they're often lifted out of their context here to describe the nature of the Scriptures. And they very much have a lot to teach us about the nature of the Scriptures. but we need to read them in context to see that they come in the midst of a section of this letter when the writer is warning persecuted Christians to not give up, to not give up. And he's using the example of the people of Israel when they're in the wilderness to say, don't be like them because what you have received in Christ The message of the gospel is of far more worth than what they had. They were looking forward to what you have received now. So we need to pay even more attention. Be careful. And he's told them that God has promised a rest for his people. And he says, I don't want you to miss out on the rest God has promised for his people. That while you are persecuted now, you're burdened now, you're weary now, there is a rest that God has promised. There is a day wherein there will be no more weeping or mourning, no more persecution, no more troubles, only contentment and rest and delight in God's very presence. So don't miss out on that. Look with me at verse 11. Let us, therefore, 
make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. That's the warning. Now, verses 12 to 13 are showing why we must heed that warning, why this warning has so much urgency and immediacy for you and for me, and why we must handle the Scriptures with extreme caution, why we cannot afford to doze or yawn or be indifferent or cold to the Word of God. So let's read together verses 12 to 13. For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So let's begin by asking the question, what is the Word of God? What does the writer mean by the Word of God that is alive and active and sharper than a double-edged sword? In the history of interpreting this passage, there have been two main positions on this. One is to draw from the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, John 1.1. 1, 1. And the Word was with God and the, and the Word was God. To say that this is a description of Jesus. The other position has been to say that this is primarily referring to the Scriptures. And in context, I believe it is primarily referring to the Scriptures. But I want to show you how these things are intimately connected. Jesus is the Word of God. John 1.1 1, 1 is correct. But in this context, the writer, by talking about the Word of God, is describing primarily the Scriptures. But what are the Scriptures? What you're holding in your hands, what you're looking at, are the verbal expression of God's purpose and will. The verbal expression of God's purpose and will. This is what God says. This is what God wants. This is what God has promised. The verbal expression of God's purpose and will. And that's not unrelated to Jesus. Because Jesus is the embodiment of God's purpose and will. And so much of what we can say about Jesus, we can say about the Scriptures, the Word of God. And in all of these things, we have the character of God at stake. The character of God. You cannot impugn the Scriptures. You cannot demean the Scriptures, or put down the Scriptures without impugning the character of God. And it's a popular thing to do. For people to say, well, I want God, and I like Jesus, and I, and I, I love so much of what He said, 
but that part back there, I don't really want to accept that. So I'm just going to cut that part out or ignore that part or say that because I'm a modern person that I don't need to believe that part. And there are many that pride themselves on being red-letter Christians. They only want the red letters in the Bible. But Jesus simply won't allow us to do that. He says, Moses wrote of me. Search the Scriptures, and you'll find they're writing about me. All Scripture is a testimony to him, not just the red letters. And when we try to ignore a part of the Scriptures, or say that, we don't have to believe that part or say that part is wrong. We're impugning the character of God. This is his word. Look at chapter 3, verse 7. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. In the immediate context, he is interacting with the scriptures. He's expounding, he's explaining, he's exhorting using the scriptures. In particular, Psalm 95. And as he cites it, he says... So as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. But then look at chapter 4, verse 7. God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did, when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That We have a human author writing David. But who's moving David to write? Who's giving David the words? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit. So the Scriptures convey the very breath of God. They are inspired. That's what inspired means. They convey the intentions, the will, the purposes of God as he expressed his word through human writers. And in these scriptures, we have promises and we have warnings. And the emphasis here is on warning. This entire section of Hebrews is a warning to not be like those who went before. And to understand the warning, we need to go back to Numbers chapter 14. And if you're able to turn there with me, I would encourage you to do so. Otherwise, I will be reading it. Numbers 14. This entire text in interacting with Psalm 95 is describing what happened to God's people Israel in Numbers 14. Now, I don't want to lose anybody here. And when we start looking at other passages of the Bible, sometimes people get lost and disoriented. They think, Wait a second, I thought we were in Hebrews 4. <clears throat> Here's why we need to do this. It's not just an exercise in cross-references. I'm not just interested in giving you a, a lecture on the Bible. We need this because when Hebrews was written, he could assume that his audience knew what happened in Numbers 14. Whereas I can't. Many Christians, maybe even most Christians, have not ever read the book of Numbers. And they certainly don't recall what happened in Numbers 14 if they did. So this is essential background reading. And the more we understand the background, the better we will be able to understand what is written in Hebrews 4. 
and the more we will know what God wants us to do. And that's the point here. The scriptures are the verbal expression of God's purpose and will. This is what God wants us to do. And if we want to be obedient, we must not only read his word, but hear and obey his word. So what's going on in in Numbers chapter 14? After God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt, what's described primarily in the book of Exodus, they ended up in a wilderness. God's told them there is a promised land. What is today modern Israel? I'm leading you there. It's a good land. But to get there, you've got to pass through the wilderness. And in the wilderness, there is a season of testing because the people are learning what it means to rely on God. It's one thing to be delivered by God, to see his miracles, to see the parting of the sea, to see your enemies destroyed behind you, to see God leading you with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. That's one thing. But then to rely on God when you're thirsty and you're hungry and you're tired and you're burdened, that's another thing entirely. This is what we need. They saw the miracles, but they needed to learn to rely on God, to depend on God, to look to God for everything, to trust him to provide. And this is saving faith, trusting God to provide. Well, as they're going through the wilderness, they eventually come to the brink of the promised land. They're, they're right there on the cusp of entering into what God has told them about. And so God says, take 12 spies, take a representative from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Go and spy this land. Check it out. See if it's a good land. And God is saying, see if what I've told you about it is true or not. Is it really good? See, see for yourself. See with your own eyes. So they do. And all 12 spies are in agreement that it is a good land. It is flowing with milk and honey. This is a prosperous land. They could enjoy this land. They could live a long time in this land. But 10 of the spies can't get over the fact that there are other people living in this land. And their cities are well fortified. And they have many warriors. And they say that in their eyes, we're like grasshoppers. We're that small. They could just stomp on us and crush us. We can't take that land. And so they grumble and they complain and they say, why did God even bring us here? But two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, say, no, God brought us to this point, and if God has promised us that land, it doesn't matter how insurmountable those obstacles may seem in our eyes, God will give us the land. Let's go on in faith. Let's persevere. But the majority of the spies persuade the majority of the people to rebel against God, to complain against God and, and against God's chosen leader, Moses. Say, Mo- we need new leaders. <laughs> Look at where Moses has got us. Look at where he's brought us. He's no leader. And so Moses and Caleb and Joshua and Aaron, Moses' brother, intercede. They fall down on their faces before the Lord. They, inter- they say, God, please have mercy on us. These people are rebelling And God says, how long will these people treat me with contempt? Look at verse 20, Numbers 14, verse 20, if you can. The Lord replied, 
I have forgiven them. In, in re- direct answer to Moses' prayer, I have forgiven them, as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because of my servant Caleb, because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. Since the Amalekites and the Canaanites are living in the valleys, turn back tomorrow and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites, so tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me, not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But as for you, your bodies will fall in this wilderness. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness, until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community which has banded together against me. They will meet their end in this wilderness. Here they will die. Now you think that would be final. Surely after God has said all that, surely after they have heard him say that those who have disobeyed him, those who said that he couldn't give them this land, that they're going to die. Surely that would be enough. Surely by now you would obey and turn back like he says. Go back. You're not going in. But they don't. They don't. And this has all kinds of implications for Hebrews 4, verse 12. Look at verse 39 of Numbers 14. When Moses reported this to all the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. Early the next morning, they set out for the highest point in the hill country, saying, Now we are ready to go up to the land the Lord promised. Surely we have sinned. But Moses said, Why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed. Do not go up, because the Lord is not with you. You will be defeated by your enemies, for the Amalekites and the Canaanites will face you there. Because you have turned away from the Lord, he will not be with you, and you will fall by what? The sword. You will fall by the sword. Are are we hearing any echoes of Hebrews 4, verse 12? Nevertheless, in their presumption, they went up toward the highest point in the hill country, though neither Moses nor the ark of the Lord's covenant moved from the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and attacked them and beat them down all the way to Hormah. The first thing Hebrews 4.12 says we need to know about the Word of God is that it is alive and active, which is to say it is effective. He's describing its effectiveness. We've seen what the Word of God is. It's the verbal expression of God's purpose and will. Now we're looking at what do we need to know about the Word of God? What are its characteristics? The first thing is that it is alive and active. 
And that means that its effectiveness can be seen in the fact that God doesn't make idle threats. He doesn't say things just to scare people. When he says, this generation will never enter my rest, they will never enter the promised land. He means it. He said it. But they won't believe it. And in their obstinance, in their stubbornness, in their rebellion, they say, no, no, no. We're sorry now. We've repented, so now we can go in. And they get their weapons together, and and they move forward. And Moses says, stop, don't do it. God's spoken. He's, He's threatened this. And if he said it, it will happen. He says what he means, and he means what he says. Don't do it. But look at what happens. They go in, and the language is, you will fall by the sword. And the language here in the Greek translation of the book of Numbers, which is the translation used by the writer to the Hebrews, it's the same wording, the same word for sword. The writer to the Hebrews is wanting his audience, he's wanting you and me as we read this, to think of Numbers 14. What happened to them when they disobeyed? What happened to them when they didn't heed what God said? They fell by the sword. Which shows us again that this is primarily a word of warning. This is not a word of encouragement or promise, primarily. As much as we want it to be that. It's a word of warning because the word of God, what he says, it's sharper than a sword. They fell by the sword, but God's word is even more powerful. And even those who weren't cut down by the sword, by the Amalekites and the Canaanites, they will eventually die in the wilderness, whether of plague or starvation or thirst, whatever it is, they will never enter the promised land. God's word is living and active. It is effective. Do you trust God's word to be effective? As Isaiah puts it in chapter 55, verses 10 to 11, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth, it will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God's word will never return void. If he says it will happen, it will happen. And that means sometimes his word goes forth in judgment, with threatenings, to show that those who disobey cannot enter this rest. Remember verse 11, let us therefore make every effort to enter this rest so that no one will perish, literally fall. Think of falling by the sword, so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Don't be like them. That doesn't have to be your story. It's not too late. It's still today. It's still the day of mercy. But make no mistake, if you reject God's word, if you show contempt for God, if you think you don't need God, if you think you can do better than God, if you want to argue with God, well then this sort of judgment will come for you and it is alive, it is active, it is just as alive as the living God, it partakes of his power 
It is effective. Do you believe in the effectiveness of the Word of God? So that's the first thing we need to know about the Word of God. It's living, it's active. He's describing its effectiveness. Next, he describes its sharpness. Its sharpness. In other words, it's effective to do what? Effective to do what? Sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It penetrates. Some have spent a great deal of time trying to understand how do you divide soul from spirit because oftentimes in the scriptures these are used synonymously. It's possible that by distinguishing them, he's using an ancient distinction between the soul as what is known as the, animal, the animal-like part of human beings versus the spirit representing our rational capacity, our intellectual capacity. That's possible. But there's a greater point to see here. What happens if you separate soul and spirit, joints and marrow? What happens? Well, oftentimes this is read as God's power through his word to convict sinners of their sinfulness. So allow us to see, I'm, I'm in desperate need of his grace. I need to repent of my sins and turn to Christ. And while that's true, and while God's word absolutely does do that, that's not the main emphasis here. The main emphasis here is on the power of God's word to kill kill. This is what happens when you separate soul and spirit, joints and marrow. When these things are separated, there's no life. This is God's judgment on sin. And make no mistake, sin will be judged in the end. And all those who persist in their sinfulness, those who refuse God's offer of mercy, who refuse to come to Christ and have life face the prospect of his sword of judgment. And it is truly a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. When you have spurned his love, rejected his offers of mercy. Many think that just because there's no lightning bolt striking you right now, that they don't have to worry about God's judgment. And they think this is something that preachers just use to scare people and to enforce good behavior. Just hellfire and brimstone, that's preaching from the past. We don't need that anymore, praise God. And now let's just talk about love. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. God doesn't make idle threats. He doesn't just turn a blind eye to sin. His judgment against sin is good, it's right, it's holy. And it doesn't matter how much of a period of time may elapse when we don't see his judgment. It will come. It will come. And people in the wilderness who weren't struck down by the sword may have thought, okay, I guess I escaped that judgment. I guess I can still enter in the promised land. No, 
One way or another, God's judgment will fall on those who reject him, who refuse his offer of mercy. It is sure, it is certain, you can bank on it. And we will either come in this life or in the life to come. Do you believe that? Do you believe that it's good and right for the sword of God's judgment to fall upon our sinfulness? Do you believe that there's something in you that needs to die because it's offensive in God's sight? Or are you good to go? It's not really that big of a deal. No. Use extreme caution in handling the word of God. This is a lethal weapon. Lethal, not just to your body, but to your soul. Be careful. This is its effectiveness to kill sin. To destroy anything or anyone that would oppose God. That's the second thing to see about the Word of God. Here's the third thing we need to see. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Why does it kill? Notice the comprehensiveness of the word of God. The comprehensiveness. It doesn't just stop with joints and marrow. Where does it go? The thoughts and attitudes of the heart the heart, our most inward being, who we are, the very core of who we are. The Word of God sees into that. You can hide it from me, we can hide it from one another, but we can't hide it from the sight of God. We cannot hide from His scrutiny. And this points to something that is absolutely essential to understand about Christianity and the gospel. Christianity is a uniquely spiritual religion. It is a heart religion. It is inward. It's not that God doesn't care what we do with our bodies or what we do on the world, but if what we're doing with our bodies isn't in alignment with our hearts, then it's all null and void. It's not pleasing in God's sight. It may even be offensive in God's sight. Where am I getting this? Consider Proverbs 4.23. Above all, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Above all, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Consider the words of Jesus. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Who you are and what you are in your heart will be revealed by what you say and how you live. Consider Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We may think, well, I've never murdered anybody, so check that one of the Ten Commandments, I should be good to go. What does Jesus say? Well, have you ever been angry at someone? Well, if you've been angry at them, you've killed them in your heart. 
And he's not saying that anger is equivalent to murder, but what he's saying is that God wants inward heart obedience. Don't just rest in what you've done externally. You may say, well, I've never committed adultery. So I'm good to go. Check that box. But have you ever looked on a man or woman with lust in your heart? If you have, then you have committed adultery and you are guilty before God. The heart, the heart, above all, guard your heart, for from it flows everything you do. And we can gather and say beautiful, eloquent prayers. We can sing uplifting, encouraging music that would seem to glorify God. We can give everything we have to the poor to alleviate hunger. But if our hearts aren't resting in God, if they're not trusting in Christ, God's not pleased. If you don't believe me, just read Isaiah 1. He says, stop offering me these meaningless sacrifices. Stop offering up all these prayers. I'm not listening to you because your hearts are far from me. And the word of God penetrates to see all that. You can't hide from that. Those secret sins that we harbor, that we don't want anybody to know about, that that we're holding on to, he sees that. You can't hide that from him. The word of God is comprehensive in its reach. Do you believe that? So what should we do? In light of what the word of God is, in light of what we're told about it, what should we do? Stop hiding. Come into the light. Pray Psalm 139. Search me, God. Know me. See if there's any unclean thing in me. And pray for God to rip it out by the roots. Pray for him to crucify the sin that is in you. For sin to be killed in you. Don't try to hide. You can't. Come into the light. Come into the light. Because you have an invitation to come into the light by the mercy of God. Because Jesus Christ, the incarnate expression of God's purpose and will, has come. He's come. And for every one of our sins that we don't want to let go of, that we don't want anybody to know about, He suffered and bled on the cross. He made atonement for the sins of his people. Your sins have been paid for, not in part, but in full. So come. Nothing is hindering you except the hardness of your own heart. Here's Psalm 95. Again, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. Come to him and find mercy and forgiveness. And I promise you, you will have it. Turn to him. Humble yourselves under his mighty hand and he will lift you up. But it starts with acknowledging we don't deserve this. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this shows us just how merciful and gracious he is to offer this to sinners like us. See how silly it is to think we could hide 
or run from him. We can't. The word of God closes off every avenue of escape. There's only one place to turn. So turn to Christ and be saved. Turn to him and find life. Life everlasting. That's why he came. I came that they might have life and life everlasting. Would you have life today? Would you receive mercy? Would you have grace abounding in your life? Would you leave this place rejoicing because of what he's done? It's available to you. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit. It divides joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Would you come? Would you receive mercy and forgiveness from the Lord? Would you say, Lord, have your way in my life. I'm yours, all of me. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we confess that you are the God to whom we must give account. Our dealings aren't primarily with one another, with a pastor or a religious leader. Our dealings aren't with Moses or with angels. You are the only God with whom we have to do. And we praise you today that in Christ you have offered forgiveness and mercy to even the chief of sinners. And so we pray, Lord, that as we sing these words, as we live our lives this week, that we would do so with an awareness of your gaze and that we would long for that. We would continually pray, search me and try me and know me, Lord. Lord, may that be our prayer. Lord, help us to work, to labor, to enter your rest so that we would not fall as those who are disobedient. And I pray for any backsliding Christian today. I pray for anyone who may think they're a Christian or we think they're a Christian, but who is not, Lord. May this be the day of salvation. Awaken us, convict us, show us our waywardness and our sinfulness, and draw us, draw us, Lord, by the power of your Spirit to find life and salvation in Christ as we yield our hearts, our minds, our lives, all of our being to you. Lord, have absolute sway over us as we surrender to you, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.